So this is the second week in our series of Christ in the Old Testament. And this story is an account of Noah and the flood. Many, many of you probably know this account, um, but maybe, maybe there are some things that you haven't exactly seen. I know when I was a young child, I was in Sunday school or either in, in the Christian school that I went to or Sunday school at church, and they often had either two types of things. The first type of thing they had were these little pictures, and they were painfully done. That You might think of them as being done by one of those Flemish painters, the, the Dutch painters, and they've got little scenes, and they're, the people are very... Um, um, they're very polished for for um, you know pre uh, almost prehistoric times, and the uh, the the people in the pictures look very nice, and everyone looks pretty clean, and um, and they're they're you know painterly colors and nice European landscapes. It looks nothing at all like the real. And then the other thing that I saw were these felt boards, and they they were very a lot less artfully done. They were these <laughs> these boards and and little tiny animals uh, cut out two D pictures of of the objects in the story. And so you would often see the teacher; she would represent certain things. and But there, there are a number of misconceptions that I received as a child in hearing the story of, of Noah. And I hope that you haven't had those things. But if you have, um, hopefully we'll undo those things today. But this is not a story where, you know, the rain just comes down and then Noah and all his family, all smiling, get in the boat and everything's fine. This is a very intense story. And this, while those are very nice tools, I believe we should teach our children the accounts of the Old Testament. I think it's right and important and good to lay a godly foundation. I just don't want to paint any sort of a uh, watercolor picture this morning. So this is the second, uh, second teaching in our series of Christ in the Old Testament. And we, I want to just remind us of some things we saw the first time. Covenant theology the Imago Dei, and the redemption of creation. Again, the purpose of this series, John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. He didn't rebuke them saying that you don't have eternal life in the scriptures. He actually, he actually affirmed what they believe. He said, you search the scriptures because you believe that in the scriptures you have eternal life. And that's true. But Jesus said that eternal life is knowing the Father and the one whom he sent, or knowing knowing the Son and and the Father. That is, eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. And in this verse, in John 5, 39, he says, it is these, it is the scriptures that testify about me. And we noted last week how when Jesus said that, nothing in the New Testament that we know of today as the New Testament had been written at that time. And so he had to be referring. He wasn't even primarily referring. He was only referring to the New Testament. And so my, my bold claim with this series is if you don't see Christ every time you read the scriptures, you have totally missed the point. And so what I want to do with this series is help you develop some sort of an affection for Christ showing up in the Old Covenant. And we see that in a number of ways. One of the, one of the large themes in the Old Covenant, really the whole, the whole uh, you know, 
the whole text of the scriptures is this idea of covenant theology that God has made a way through which he relates to humans. And that way is a way that has been prescribed and he does not vary from that way. God interacts with man through a covenant and each covenant has promises, has demands, and it has consequences. God says, if you do this, then I will bless you, or I will protect you, or I will be your shield, I will go before you, I will be behind you, I will, I will protect you. He says that to his people in battle. He says that to individuals. To, to, we're going to look in the future at Abraham and how God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'll bless you and I'll multiply you. We saw last week how God made a covenant with Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply, take the earth and subdue it. And so in scripture, we see an ever unfolding picture of this one covenant of redemption. It takes on different forms or different facets. Like if you look at a diamond, you might see a different spectrum of light. It shines a different way a little bit as you turn it, but but it's still a diamond and you're still seeing light come out of it. That's, that's what this is when we see the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and so on. They are really just different facets of this one covenant, the eternal covenant that God has made with man in, the, in himself, that God has made in himself to redeem and to save fallen humanity. And so this this idea of covenant is really important for us to understand. If we don't understand covenant, then there's no, there's no context for any of the scripture. We can't understand the scripture without getting from the scripture an understanding of covenant. And once we have that, things begin. We have a, it's, it's like a framework of a building. If you don't have a foundation of covenant theology, then the Old Testament doesn't make much sense. And the New Testament is really without a context. We looked last week also at this concept of Imago Dei, that, that man has been created in the image of God and that because man is created in the image of God, man holds in himself innate worth. That is, God has placed worth in each person because that person is made in him. And now some of you that might believe that sounds humanistic, but it's actually humanistic to ignore the image of God in man and to say that man is unimportant but actually it's, it's true biblical, uh, it's a biblical way of thinking that man, although fallen, is still important. Every single human is still important because they carry the image of God on them. Last week we looked at, at that idea, but this week we're going to look at how murder is actually a destruction of that image. And therefore, because it's a destruction of that image, it's actually extremely offensive to God. And we didn't cover the story of Cain and Abel. We kind of went right from Adam and Eve to Noah. But in the midst of that, murder has been spreading. And we're going to look at that this morning. But, the, but what God's extremely angry about is not just murder, but premeditated murder. And that shows up in this story in, in a really important way. And then finally, the last really big element of, of the Old Testament that we need to highlight is the, this idea of a redemption. This, this relates to the goodness of God. God is good and he wants to redeem his creation. Romans 8, 20 through 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is, 
Adam had sinned and because of that, God cursed the creation because sin and death had entered into it and it was being corrupted. And so if God didn't come and curse it, it was going to be a force of of evil. If he didn't, if he didn't put a curse on the ground, it would then man was going to use all of the profits or all of the proceeds, all of the yield from the ground for just evil desires. And so God puts a curse on it. He he kind of levels the playing field and says, Man, you can't just use and exploit my creation for your evil purposes. I have a I want to redeem it. And so so God redeems his creation. And then this is where we pick up the story. Adam and Eve had been expelled from the garden. They had some sons. Cain killed Abel. Then Seth came along. Now there's a big population explosion. People start having lots of kids. There's a few generations between Adam and Noah. And and we pick up in the story of Noah. In Genesis 6, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is where I find a break with the felt paper stories I learned as a child. I never was told that there was evil continually on the earth. It just, we kind of picked up the story and God came to Noah and said, Noah, build a boat and because uh, there's going to be water. And um, <laughs> it was never highlighted the depth of the fall that this this sin that entered in through Adam and Eve, it had spread to everyone and everywhere. And in Genesis 6, 5, we see that the heart of man is only evil continually. That is, the plans that mankind and each, not only collectively, but each individual, the plans that they were making together were for evil. Those plans, they were plotting and thinking about ways to commit murder and to steal from one another and to destroy creation. And the thoughts and intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 11 through 12 reiterates this idea. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. That is every, every person was, was sinning and not only that, but every, every person was sinning in such a way that in 6.5 it says that the thought of their hearts were evil continually. In the midst of all of this corruption, God brings a judgment. And God's judgment is actually redemptive. It's not just a fly off the handle. It's not, a, it's not an anger without context. It's not... Dad doesn't come home drunk and beats the wife and kids. This is a real righteous anger. And God had created and God had love for, for life. And he, he created the earth with a desire to place life and goodness in it. For He wanted to have communion with man. He wanted to reveal to mankind his glory. And yet man had perverted their way. And so God here, desiring redemption, comes to punish evil. In Psalm 103.8, we see that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so what, I, what I'm doing by highlighting his righteous anger is that even in the midst of God's anger, he's, it's extremely hard to get God to go there. As in the, the weight and the level of the iniquity that was being committed in Noah's day was extreme. 
And so here in Numbers 14, 18, Moses hears a proclamation of the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Even in the midst of God's judgment, while, while being merciful and taking a long time to get to that judgment, in the midst of his judgment, he still provides a plan of escape. That is, God provides a way of salvation for mankind in the midst of destroying evil. And in his judgments on evil, he actually unfolds this plan of redemption. This isn't God uh, being confused about what's going on, but rather God choosing to use evil even for his own purposes. Never, never becoming guilty of that evil, but rather redeeming and, and moving through that evil in such a way that he brings judgment on it, displaying his goodness and his mercy. And so many people have ideas about this story that it's just this flood and there, there's no context to it. But basically, it, this Genesis 6 says the earth is filled with murder. Our earth is, is pretty evil. I would say that it's filled with violence. There are wars in many nations going on. Our, our nation's at war. There are many nations on the earth who are plotting more wars and... There are people who murder and steal and damage and destroy. But I don't think we understand in our day the depth of the evil that was going on in this day. And I say that because God is unfolding his plan of redemption. And we're a lot further down the path in that plan than where we were when we pick up the story with Noah. And so there are seven ways that Noah points to Christ. I wanted to highlight those things God's covenant of redemption, covenant theology, Imago Dei, and that God wants to redeem the earth. Because if you don't understand those things, then his, then the flood seems like a pretty bad idea. But if you understand those things, it's, it's consistent with the nature and character of God. So seven ways that Noah points forward to Christ. We're going to look at each of these aspects. Noah's name points to Christ. The fact that he was a righteous man and that he was perfect in his generation the fact that he walked with God, the work that he did, how that work was honorable, it was solitary, but it was also successful. Noah's obedience, and then finally the blessing that Noah and his sons receive. All of these things point forward to Christ. First of all, Noah's name points forward to Christ. His name means rest. In Genesis 5.29, it says, Now Lamech called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. The Hebrew writer in the fourth chapter speaks of Christ as being the Sabbath rest for the people of God. And Lamech here, the father of Noah, prophesied beforehand saying that his son Noah would be, he, he identified Noah as one who should redeem and liberate God's people from the toil that they were entering into because of the curse on the ground. And so Lamech prophesying of, of the destiny of who his son would be actually is prophesying and pointing forward to Christ, who is the true final fulfillment of what Lamech had desired for, that Christ would be the one who liberates his people from the curse on the earth. In Isaiah eleven ten, it says, 
speaking of Christ, it says, and his rest shall be glorious. That is, Jesus is one who comes and establishes a righteous kingdom, and the rest that comes through Christ's kingdom is a glorious rest. And so while Noah does bring a rest, it's not the final full rest, and we are looking for a final and fuller rest. Another way that Noah points to Christ is that he was a righteous man. Now, I want to make it clear, the Bible is not saying that Noah was righteous in his own way. Noah was righteous being justified by faith, just like you and I are righteous. The Bible is explicitly clear that Abraham was believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. That is, Abraham didn't do the works of the law. Moses didn't do the works of the law because the law hadn't been given yet when Abraham heard God and believed him. And so God interacts with Abraham and God belie- and Abraham believes on God, believes in what God is saying. And, it, and the Bible says it is credited to Abraham as righteousness. That is, Abraham and all the old covenant saints, just like the new covenant saints, all see Christ in some measure and believe on him. It's not that in the old covenant, they did the works of the law and they obeyed perfectly. And then they got in, you know, they got in God's grace. It's actually the case that they heard God's word, believed God's word. And because they believe they respond in faith to him and and they, they are justified by faith. In the midst of him being a righteous man, he's not sinless. He had inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And so even though he's a righteous man, we're still, even Noah is not righteous enough to redeem God's people, to redeem creation from the the effects of the fall. And he points forward to the only righteous one of whom the centurion in Luke 23, 47 says, surely this is a righteous man. Noah points forward to Christ in that he was perfect in his generation. The New American Standard says, blameless in his time, King James Version gets that word a little bit better. It says uh, perfect in his generation. And the reason why it is the case is that word is a Hebrew concept that, that doesn't really, it doesn't really gel with the way that you and I talk. It's, it's, a weird, it's a weird idea. Generation literally means how he came about or what came after him. That is how he was generated or how he came to be. And so it's kind of a, we don't have time to really get into all of the, uh, flavor of that word, but really perfect in his generation signifies that Noah was part of the righteous line that came down through Adam and then Seth and so forth. It doesn't mean that he was perfect and blameless in the way that he came about. David said that, behold, in iniquity, I was conceived in my mother's womb and in in iniquity, you fashioned me. That is, David knew that he he was sinful from the beginning and David understood that he was born with sinful desires. And the Bible is not saying here that Noah was sinless from birth. Perfect in the way that he came about is just indicating that he was part of the, the righteous line that came down from Seth. But there is a way that he points forward to the one who would be perfect in how he came about. When the eternal word was made flesh, he came about in a spotless way. That is, he didn't contract the corruption of that came down through Adam. And in his humanity, our Lord was separated from sinners, as Hebrews 7.26 says. 
Unlike all of humankind, he was not shapen and conceived in iniquity. On the contrary, the, the, the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke one thirty five that holy thing which shall be born out of thee shall be called the Son of God. That is, Jesus was holy from the beginning. He came about through a holy way, and he did not receive the sin that came down through the line of Adam. Noah also points to Christ in that Noah walked with God. Noah was a type of him who would live 33 years here on the earth in unbroken communion with the Father. At all times that Jesus was on the earth, he walked with God. He walked with the Father. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, living by the word of God, in fellowship continually with the Father. And finally, at the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was no time in which Jesus did not walk with God. Noah also points to Christ in that his work was an honorable work. The task of preserving from God's judgment representatives of all of creation was placed on Noah. That's an amazing honor. Noah was, had found grace in the sight of God and because of that grace, God had decided to work in and through and with Noah to, re, to provide a way for the future of creation. Yet to Jesus Christ alone, God's beloved only son was entrusted the task of effecting the salvation of lost and ruined sinners. Also in Jesus' work, at no time did he require any help in his accomplishing of the receiving of the wrath of God. John 17, 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The type is so clear and plain that almost commenting any further isn't necessary, but Jesus alone received the issue and the command to redeem God's people from the fall. And Noah, although he provides a way moving forward, working by himself, still repopulated the earth or replenished the earth with his wife and his sons. But he alone built the ark and so points forward to Christ who alone can save from death and from sin. His, his work was a solitary work. There's no reference to any help that Noah received. And Jesus, the work of redemption, who was, which was accomplished by our Lord Jesus, it says of in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, and he needed no, no assistance. It's very significant to me that there's no hint at all of any work or help that Noah received from his family. And it, this, again, is where illustrators, in my opinion, have gone too far. When I was a child, I saw little pictures of his sons, you know, putting together the boat as well. And, you know, his wife helping do doing things. But from the text, it's very clear that God issues a command to Noah and he says, you, not you and your family. He does mention their fa his family, but he says, your family shall go into the ark with you, but he only tells Noah to build. And so the, the, the type and the pointer to Christ is pretty plain there. Not only is his work honorable and alone, but his work is also successful. 
In Hebrews 11, 7, it says that Noah built an ark for the saving of his house. And in Hebrews 36, it uses similar language that Christ was a son over all of God's house. In Christ's priestly function, the offering of himself up by the Holy Spirit to atone for sin, was that was a successful work, just as Noah's work was successful. Also, the effect and the, the fullness of Noah's work points to Christ's work. Noah's work brought a blessing to all of creation, but also Christ's work brings a blessing. In Romans 8, 21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And so here, Noah's work, not only, not only being honorable and solitary, but also the success of Noah's work, that he did successfully make a way for people to, for, for, for God to continue to relate to man, that man wasn't blotted out altogether. Also in, in Noah's obedience, it points forward to Christ. No, it says in Genesis six twenty two and seven five, thus did Noah according to all that God had commanded to him. And again in seven five it says, and Noah did according unto all that the Lord had commanded him. This idea that Noah obeyed God perfectly, but even Noah's obedience is not perfect. It says in Philippians two eight that Jesus became obedient, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. In all things, Jesus Christ has preeminence. In his obedience of going to the cross, Christ fulfilled an obedience that was more complete than even Noah's. And then finally, the blessing that Noah brings. Noah and his sons are linked together in the blessing of God in Genesis 9.1. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. It is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see how Noah is linked to his sons in receiving the blessing. And here they are linked together in the enjoyment of God's blessing as though to foreshadow the blessed fact that you and I, we become heirs of Christ's blessing. That is everything that we are blessed with all, all of the wonder and the glory and the joy of knowing God, knowing his word, participating in the fellowship and the communion of the saints, that all comes about because of what Christ had done on the cross. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It is only in Christ that we receive the blessing. And so the fact that Noah and his sons were blessed points to the fact that our father Christ has the, our, the, the new covenant head of our line, Christ, has purchased a blessing and a redemption for us. And so what I hope this message did for you today is I hope it showed you a way to being mindful of, of what Christ had done while you read follow and see the pointers forward. It's not enough to see and understand the story, but rather the New Testament makes it clear that Noah foreshadowed Christ. And we didn't spend a lot of time looking at it, but we saw it in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 3, a number of other places. But here it's important. What I'm trying to develop for you is a way to read the scriptures in such a way that while you're reading, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to how this person or that person or this event 
or that event points forward to the work of Christ. And so with that, we'll pray and then take communion. Father, we thank you for the wonderful glory in your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, that we would behold beautiful and wondrous things from your law, that we would be inclined toward your law, that we would be uh, moved away from sin, but that we would rather keep our way pure, that we would look on Noah and we would see how Noah points to Christ. God, that you would train us by your Holy Spirit, illuminating the word of God day in and day out, that we would see the person and the work of Jesus on every page of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.